Welcome back to the Arbitration Station, Episode 9. Right? Or? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, yeah, you know. Trouble, we have trouble <laughs> keeping track because we were we don't record these on the day that they're released, unfortunately. Surprise, surprise. We have to go in and cut out all the inaccuracies Joel uh, talks about on the podcast. <laughs> How does it feel, Joel? I'm going to be silent now for <laughs> five minutes and let you do this. I feel like only 5% <laughs> makes it on the podcast of what Joel says. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we're in Stockholm again. It's a rainy Stockholm day. We're Which we can tell because we've upgraded from the fancy office to the, like, I guess the, the noise is better in here. It's uh, some sort of studio exactly. with no windows and nothing. It's more of an insulated environment. Yeah, we are now serious podcasters. Exactly. We've gotten a lot of good feedback. We're up above a thousand listeners, a thousand downloads per day. Yeah, that's good. How many people do you think work in arbitration? What, what What's the like uh, potential demographic for us? Worldwide? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's do some quick like consulting math. <laughs> if you have like 400 lawyers in the biggest firm here in Sweden, so you would, I would say like, a thousand in Sweden working on it. I would say like twenty five thousand lawyers. Okay, so there's still some room, provided that you have any idea what you're talking about. I'm not so sure. I think it might be more. Maybe. I mean, every fourth person in the states, for example, is a lawyer. So maybe every tenth person <laughs> is an arbitration lawyer. <laughs> they give it out. It's like the Sorting Hat. In <laughs> like lawyer. <laughs> Uh, which actually leads us to our topics today. So we're going to have um, Patricia Shaughnessy, who is the director of the LLM program at Stockholm University in International Commercial Arbitration on the podcast today. But before we pick her brain on the ins and outs of education, we're going to talk to her about the summary procedure in the SEC rules that came out in the 2017 revisions. Um, and kind of what I want to talk about with those rules is to talk about more of the like litigation tools that have started to arise in arbitration. Do you think that's an American thing? It might be. But isn't this particular thing, the summary procedure in the SEAC rules yeah. as well? Yeah. So we, yeah. We, we, I, I'm just thinking because then we had the same discussion that we had once before when we talked about emergency arbitration as to who was first and who came up with this. But yeah, you're probably right. Uh, it, it feels that this particular segment talking about this summary procedure should really be done in a framework of the judicialization of arbitration, I guess. Some would argue, at least. Many. Yeah. Yeah. And then we are going to keep Patricia on the line because of her, you know, repute in the industry. Yeah. Let me say, before she walks through the door and I'll embarrass her, if I am Patricia... When I'm older, I'm happy. She's like my career role model, basically. As an she's teaching yeah. and sitting as an arbitrator. And yeah, she's doing so many things at the same time while still being a generally good person who is always friendly when people talk to her. Definitely. No, she's, she's a person in the industry. I'm a little bit scared that she will outshine us on the podcast. <laughs> we would have to like invite her on a permanent basis or just give the podcast away and she could take over. The Patricia Shaughnessy podcast. <laughs> But uh, we're, so the third segment, we're going to pick her brain on 
the proliferation of specialist LLM programs and kind of parlay that into career opportunities for young arbitrators or arbitration practitioners, I should say. And academics. And academics. Which I guess maybe are covered by practitioner yeah. umbrella. Yeah. And she's going to bring up the perfect viewpoint to this topic because she does, she is an academic, but she also sits as an arbitrator and really helps in like the practical skills portion. I mean, I studied under her and we had a lot of practical skills, um, you know, lessons and yeah. exercises. And you're not the only one who studied under her. There's got to be thousands of yeah. people, basically. There's an email list and it takes about 15 minutes to scroll <laughs> through the recipients. Uh, no, it's a little family, the iCal family. It's been going on for 15 years. I remember there yeah. was a 10-year anniversary and that was years ago. So, yeah, let's ask her. All right. She should know. Here she comes. So thank you so much for coming in, I guess is the correct phrase, Patricia. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I mean that. <laughs> you mean you never know. <laughs> exactly. It's good to know. Good to be frank. We thought we would talk a little bit. This is a custom in this podcast that we talk a little bit about substance just to get that out of the way. And then we do the more fun stuff and talk a little bit more informally about something that's less substantive. Is that okay with you? Yes, except for the... The remark about substance not being anything that's very interesting. <laughs> Finally, another scholar in the yeah. room. <laughs> I'm outnumbered. <laughs> Such a Brian thing to try to <laughs> avoid the, the fun and the, and the substance. We were talking about the moot uh, competitions maybe the last episode. Yeah. So before that, yeah. And I said it's so so much fun. Even if you're not participating in the moot, it's always fun to read the problems just because the fun of it. And Brian gave me a look. <laughs> Like kind of crazy. <laughs> so Brian the, has the expressive looks. It's a lot. <laughs> it's, you can't see lot. them in the podcast. No, yeah. yeah, it doesn't really translate very well into this medium, unfortunately. So the 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 first thing that we wanted to talk about is this uh, summary procedure that was introduced in the recent, most recent version of the SEC rules. Because you are very much involved, are you not, in the SEC? Uh, both on the board, or are you the deputy chairperson? Is that mm. the correct? And the, the deputy chair, and um, I was on the rules committee for this set of rules and for the last couple sets of rules. So okay, so mm -hmm. you're the perfect person to talk to about this. Yeah. How does the, how do they set up the rules committee? Who's who's on it? Um, actually, that's something which is done by the um, leadership at the institute, and so then people are asked to be on the board, and the um, and what criteria they have, I don't really know since I was asked rather than being one who was selecting people. Right. But I do know that they strive to try to bring together uh, international and to bring people both from um, who have some experience within the SEC from being on the board and such and others who have experience as being practitioners you know, to get a, br a broad base of right. users and input. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty yeah. diverse group of people, I think. Yes, yeah, so diverse geographically, diverse in terms of job uh, backgrounds. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you're the uh, academic, uh, resident academic. Yeah, the yeah. resident. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm fortunate there's not a lot of competition for an <laughs> academic and arbitration that is a female and still alive in Sweden. <laughs> Good, you got, you got the market cornered. <laughs> so in, 
in or uh, is it article 39 i think of the re most recent yeah. version so you, you guys went away for uh, talked in, in different subgroups for a while and then you came back with a draft that was uh, published in draft version with the intention of getting public input and in as of january 1st 2017 the new version of the rules apply and in those rules article 39 gives the tribunal the express power to rule upon request from a party on matters of both law and fact, right? Right. Uh, in a summary manner, whatever that means. Hmm? Is that a, a quick, decent summary of what Article 39 says? That's a good summary of the summary rule. <laughs> <laughs> so th that's actually my first question, because I, what does summary really mean? Well, and, no, actually, you're quite right that there, there were um, many drafts, actually, before we got to the final draft, and yeah. we sent it out for... Um, public hearings. We had a roadshow and we had both within Sweden and outside of Sweden. And so we're trying to get a lot of input on it and then finally reach the final text. And so even giving it its name was a matter of great discussion. Right. Should one call it summary procedure? Should one call it summary dismissal? There's many different names. Um, and so the idea was to try to capture a name which captured the essence of the rule, and that is that there would be an opportunity for parties at an earlier stage in the arbitration before you get all the way through the entire proceedings to ask a tribunal to dismiss claims or defenses which did not seem to have a significant need for going through the regular process. Is this a problem, generally, that you see parties raising that type of manifestly unsustainable pleadings or, or points so as to suggest a need for this type of express provision? Because I, I guess, I mean, under most rules, you could argue that there's still this type of power inherent in what the tribunal can do. So saying so expressly sort of would suggest that mm -hmm. this is a big problem. We need there's to point out that the tribunal can do this. And that was that's a question with multiple. Yes, yeah. <laughs> ob obviously not a journalist. Nine <laughs> questions in. But I'll in be one. a politician <laughs> and answer the answer the question I would like to answer. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Talk the same language. <laughs> but let me start by saying, without wandering too far down the line, I think that you've hit upon something which is quite important in arbitral rulemaking, and that is that. When arbitrate, arbitration institutes are revising rules, I think that one should be mindful of whether or not they're trying to capture existing practice and to make it more transparent by having it codified, or are they trying to respond to users' needs, that, that they have received input, that this is an increasing need that needs to be addressed in order to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of arbitration? Or are they trying to actually establish and launch some new best practice that's not currently in the market and saying we're trying to be a leader and um, we think that this is going to enhance the experience? And there can be different variations of what motivates a particular rule change. Or is it just catching up with other institutes that have done things? Right. Or just trying to do something that's new to raise the flag? And, and, um, yeah, this seems to be the latter. We were talking about the fact that it's not very common, that it's also in the SEAC rules, but otherwise it's, it's not, as of yet, best practice, right, to have this type and, of provision. And the SEAC rules were being um, revised at the same time that the SEC rules. And um, watchful observers who look at the members of the committee will probably see that there was some cross-pollinization of committee mm -hmm. members. So, and But probably more importantly is that I think 
this type of summary dismissal rules time had come. So as arbitration strives to try to um, improve itself, to provide new solutions, to try to be more responsive, to develop more efficient and effective practices, and looking at what could be done to try to improve, that this was something which um, is, one could argue is a natural development. Because most of the developments we see in arbitration rule practice in, in recent years tend to um, be mimicking or at least being inspired by types of procedural devices and mechanisms which have worked well in litigation. Right. And so those tend to perhaps, as I said, inspire or but what, be copied. In investment in the investment arbitration context, they have this oil platforms test that comes up. And from what I have read about it or have experienced it myself in practice is that it's become almost another hurdle for par for parties a party that wants to slow down the proceedings. Do all of us know what the oil pot? No, platform but practices? it's a summary procedure. Yeah. It's a summary procedure, and I. So my basic question is: Do you think that there's, or was it discussed that it could potentially be another tool that parties can use to draw out the proceedings? Yeah, I, I think one can say quite fairly with the caliber and the number of, of people who were on the committee and people took it very seriously. We had robust discussions. There was um, many drafts of this. So I think that we can pretty much say that probably there are very few stones that were not turned. Right. And looking at what kinds of uh, benefits and what potential drawbacks might be. And, um, and as you mentioned in the investment context, and you have the ICSID rule, I believe it's 41, yeah. Yeah. that has a similar proceeding. And indeed, if you read some of the commentary on the SEAC rule, you'll see that um, some of the commentary notes that the, the ICSID rule inspired the SEAC rule. And uh, when there is a device and there is so much movement between investment arbitration and commercial arbitration, by players, by commentators, but you know, being aware of both of these spheres, it's not surprising if mechanisms which are in one That's don't true. spill over so to another. Just as well as it's inspired by litigation practice, it might just as much be inspired by interstate or international law dispute mm. resolution. Because as you say, this, this is a, it's a frequent thing in, in that type of procedure as well, I think. And then you might say, well, in investment cases tend to be very complex. They tend to um, um, be very lengthy and drawn out and that you almost always have a jurisdictional phase and then you move into the next and you have a, a different context. And so one could potentially argue that that type of a rule might be well suited to an investment case where there's going to be a very long, prolonged, expensive procedure. Yeah. Um, is it as suitable for a ordinary commercial case? I, yeah. Uh, that was not a rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> She's getting into teaching mode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think it definitely is. Uh, if you think about it, when a tribunal is faced with bifurcation, for example, which comes up in commercial cases as well, uh, a lot of arbitrators are very hesitant to grant bifurcation because they just don't know uh, as much about the real facts of the case and about what's going to be implicated in that case. So this could kind of be an extra tool to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to bifurcate, but I can resolve this one isolated issue and kind of simplify the proceedings. Yeah, and I have the right and the, the backup of the rules to do right. so if I see, see that fit. Yeah, and I think that you've come into something which is, which is quite key in, in the discussion of these type of rules, and that is um, 
One, didn't parties have the right to request this and arbitrators have the power to order this despite that rule? And two, was that actually happening in different in different melodies already in the arbitration song so that you see through different techniques of bifurcating or looking at specific issues and dealing with them in this type of a way before. Right. So is this really a radical change or is it just making more transparent and making more apparent uh, inherent right and inherent power? Of the parties and the arbitrators. A good parallel, I think, is the power to grant amicus submissions, which is also in the new SEC rules for treaty-based cases. Yeah. In the we, appendix. Exactly. Yeah. And that was also, we talked about this previously on the podcast, that that's also something that many people felt that the tribunal had the inter- inherent power to do anyway, but that doesn't mean that it's not a good idea to spell that out expressly. If, yeah. if there's a need for and, it. And, and we can see that in other rules, and specifically in the 2017, after much discussion, it was decided to put a specific provision for arbitrators to have the power to grant security for costs. Right. And it was very much based, if you, if one looks at the text of the Chartered Institute approach, you can see that it somewhat reflected in the SEC approach. Uh, many feel that that is a type of interim measure and that it would an arbitrator would have power under the interim measure, particularly in an SEC-type rule, which is similar to ICC, where the arbitrators do not have designated power but can order whatever interim measure they find appropriate in the circumstances. So many would say, why do you need a special rule? And also, if we go back to the 2007 rule change, I believe that we have the um, power of the arbitrators to order... um, a separate award on the advance on costs. And then one could say, did they have that power before or not? We had a particular Swedish Supreme uh, uh, Supreme Court case that dealt with ad hoc arbitration, which may put it in question. But it was debatable whether or not you needed to spell that out in the context of rules. So it's not unusual that one adds something into the rules that arguably was hiding in the rules right. implicitly mm-hmm. before, but now we've invited it to take a place at the table. <laughs> but I guess you could make a slippery slope argument that when... I wouldn't, but I guess you could. Like, where, where do you stop then? Because you, you'll end up with 250 provisions in the rules and everything that's not spelled out expressly is not inherently part of the tribunal's power because we have all these other things that we have now granted their own provisions mm-hmm. in the rules. So the ones that we did not grant their own provisions, that means, a contrario, they are excluded from the tribunal's powers. Yeah, and I think you're spot on there because you have two approaches. You have the laissez-faire approach that says anything that's not forbidden is you're free to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who consider that the role of an arbitrator comes with rather expansive powers you know, only limited by the mandatory provisions of law and the specific agreements of the parties so that arbitrators in conducting the case have a toolbox with tools which are not specified in the rules. And once you start specifying more of these, are you then moving into an environment where you open the door for saying, well, there's so many powers that are specified. So when you start to look at powers that are not specified, that they become more questionable. So by naming some of the tools, have you yeah. potentially put into disuse other tools? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's Maybe it depends on the arbitrator. Yeah. It t- depends perhaps a lot on the on the personalities of the arbitrator. Some arbitrators take a more robust 
approach to their powers than others. <laughs> That's diplomatic. But can we talk about the scope of this rule? Is there... I mean, what's the? Is there a standard that's built? I haven't read closely the rule, but there's no standard, is there? No, I think it's as is customary. It seems that it, it, it's left very much to the tribunal. Right. Yeah, and that's one thing. If one looks at the SEC rules, that the tendency has been to be a bit of Scandinavian minimalism, and that in making the new rules, the, the kind of the guiding light was um, they should still be recognizable as SEC rules. We're not trying to dramatically change the drafting style and the approach. And so we have rules which do not elaborate in great detail right. the specific kinds of requirements and to provide what we perceive as having the discretionary power and the ability to tailor the procedure to the particular needs of the case and the arguments of the party. So you can see that there is not a lot of specificity and that one, when making rules, can discuss how much of the detail should be in the rule, which makes it more rigid and also more subject to perhaps being argued about, and how much should perhaps come from practice notes, commentary, guidelines, and you know, what evolves from that. Has it been used much, do you know? It's been in force for 10 months? Um, the, the last I heard, I had a, heard a report in September, and it, I don't think there had any um, requests coming in. Yeah. But that doesn't mean necessarily that the secretary and the board would always be completely aware Handball, unless it was right. granted. Yeah, of course, that's true. So first, the first question is that you request to have the summary. And then do you get that request? And then if you get it, did you succeed right. in striking out? Hmm. And if you didn't, it might not filter down. But, um, the first couple of parties that try to argue this, I guess, have an interesting task ahead of them trying to set down, like, how how is the summary procedure going to work? What does, what does it entail in practice? I mean, the, the other party must be heard, probably, and then yeah. it needs to be quick. Or maybe you should just make your arguments and put it on the tribunal's table and let them deal with the procedure and figure out what a summary dismissal actually entails in practice in terms of the procedural steps ahead. I just see it's yeah. just going to be a two exchanges of drafts. You have the request, reply, response. Oh, two exchanges of drafts. That sounds like a lot of council fees. Yes. <laughs> sounds like some so additional time. Fees. <laughs> Ryan's working in a law firm. He thinks there should be at least two rounds. That's why I see these tools and I'm like, no, but yes. <laughs> yeah, because I was actually thinking that maybe that just a, re a reply. Well, maybe would be sufficient, but I mean, it depends on the case, of course. Yeah. And, the and maybe, and maybe, what might be clever if you really were interested as counsel to get this, that maybe one ought to, uh, when requesting, come come up with a, a proposal about how this could be done efficiently, and how it's going to be to everyone's benefit to get right. this out of the way. Because if you perhaps request it and leave everything, all the heavy lifting of arranging this and what it's going to mean to the arbitrators, maybe you won't have. I don't know. Yeah. But you might get a better chance if you could show that this is this is going to be to everyone's yeah, yeah, procedural definitely. efficiency. Yeah. Do you? I mean, coming from an American background, as you do as well. If uh, when I read the SEC rules for the first time, I was you know not shocked, but just surprised by the Scandinavian style of drafting. Do you now subscribe to it? Are you a true believer into that type of <laughs> drafting style? Curveball. <laughs> is it? Oh, curveball is baseball and metaphor. We're Americans. Yeah. Um, no, actually, um, I'm basically a fan of having less regulation. And I think, you know, the old devil's at the detail. 
And um, I think it's a, a problem. If you try to over-regulate in the rules, I think you're really straight-jacketing and, and losing the flexibility. I think that most tribunals and most council managed to work with a good dose of integrity and um, appropriate uh, ethical behavior. Right. I think that most um, counsel and arbitrators can maneuver with in an environment where the rules are relatively minimalized. Right. I think no. it's good. But talk about like flexibility. Can this summary procedure work for any type of issue or do you think it has to be a head issue or could it be just to the level of a stipulation, like on Wednesday it rained, we can stipulate yeah. to that. <laughs> well, Summary I think, procedure. I think, it's, I think it's really open to being elaborated on by practice. And, and going back to the title, I mean, one of the things that uh, comes up, if you start calling it summary, then for American practitioners, you think summary judgment, Rule 56. Right. Or is it a dismissal, 12B6? <laughs> you know, so we already have in our procedural repertoire recognition of certain procedural devices, and we have a way in which we envision that it's going to work based upon our practice. That may not be shared by many practitioners who come from different environments where right. this may be different. And um, I read a a note that was published by Gary Bourne and Johnny Lim, uh, two colleagues who I greatly respect and who were very involved, obviously, in the SEAC rule. And in that note that was published on the eve of the entry into force of the SEAC rule, it was commented that, that this rule was inspired by ICSID 41 and also by the fact that this type of practice was already occurring in courts and that, in fact, um, some tribunals in SEAC uh, tribunals were already, by analogy, using devices to, through bifurcation and such, and right. to do early dismissals, and suggesting that arbitrators and parties could be informed on how to use this new device by the court practice. And that caused me to raise an academic eyebrow, because I'm thinking, whose court practice? Mm. Uh, maybe in Singapore, where you have a common law background, you have court practice with that. Maybe one or two or three of the arbitrators do, maybe one or two of the council, but who's practicing? And across the international environment in which arbitration exists, we may not find that everyone has the same idea. And I'm not sure if it's a good idea if an arbitration rule should be informed by judicial practice particularly one that has to do with early dismissal of a claim. Right. I don't think we would be encouraging national courts to be looking at national procedural practice and setting aside an enforcement proceedings. But if we're encouraging arbitrators and counsel to look there, doesn't that flow over to inviting courts to looking yeah. at national practice? So I think that's a pretty slippery slope. But that was just a small comment in a larger article. So. If Johnny or Gary happen to be listening or any of their... I'm Avid well, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of the fact that I'm probably taking that little comment and blowing it up to a much bigger No, but balloon. a discussion topic nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, and still you were on the, the, the committee that drafted a similar rule. Yeah. In the end, anyway. I mean, irrespective of from where it comes, if it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Yeah, and I would just caution about, um, you know, even if you can find some recognition or inspiration from looking at judicial practice. I think that one should be a little bit careful that just because we get inspired and, and have some similar procedural things that they ought to fill out and receive their life 
from the context of international arbitration. Great. Let's move on. Welcome back to the next segment, which we will be talking about the proliferation of specialist LLM programs, which we have, you know, a figurehead right before us to talk about it. But also we're going to talk about the importance of the LLL program in the context of career progression in arbitration. What, what Patricia doesn't know, and we should probably say, is that what you just said with a serious voice is preceded by the jingle for Happy Fun Time, which is a beer bottle opening. So right. you're maybe a little bit too serious. You can, if, if you didn't already, now you can let your hair down a little bit and we won't talk. But I feel really deprived because I don't see any beer. I guess it's like, you know, air guitar, air yeah. beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah air we're beer. at your firm, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Butler. That's okay. That's okay. I'll forego the beer bubbles in light of, if subsequently you can give me a, a higher class bubble. Perfect. Champagne <laughs> it is. Deal. <laughs> So you are the director of, again, we're going to have to figure out your title, is the director of the LLM program. It's, it's not even the LLM program. The master's program at Stockholm University yes. in International Commercial Arbitration. Yes. ICAL. ICAL. Uh, and how long have you I'm been? I'm the ICAL gal. You, the ICAL mother. <laughs> what, um, how long have you been doing this since it, you started the program? Actually, I started the program in... Um, 2003 was the first class. And then um, in the first few years, I did it together with Lars Hoyman. And, uh, and then was what was the purpose? In start, did, was there a need for it? Or did you think that it would help attract students to the Stockholm market? Or what was the initial drive? Well, actually, it was something which had been um, discussed between Lars and and me, and as, as well as some other members of the um, arbitration community in Stockholm, that it would be great to have an LLM program in arbitration in Stockholm because we have a, a very um, robust arbitration community, and we thought this would be a natural postgraduate program. We already had um, three other uh, LLM programs at Stockholm University but nothing in arbitration, and we thought this would be a great practice area. And we had people, for example, Ulf Frankie had been suggesting to this to me for years. So the timing was right. I had finished my doctoral studies, and um, I thought this would be an exciting initiative. Did you, take, did you draw from programs that already existed on how to set it up? Um, there weren't so many programs that already existed, and really, no, it really kind of started from scratch. And the one thing that we did want to do was... Um, that it would not be like the LLM programs in the U.S. And even the LLM program that I did in Stockholm years before that were more like the U.S. where you had an introduction to Swedish law for a few weeks, which is like not even at a law level, let alone a postgraduate. And then you selected three courses from the elective menu, <laughs> and then you wrote a thesis on the topic of your choice, which could be arbitration or or any Anything, topic. Yeah. And then you got an LLM in international comparative law. And uh, we felt that we wanted to have a LLM that was really devoted to have a postgraduate, rigorous academic with practical implications designed to allow interested students to be able to be a specialist 
either as a practitioner or going on into an academic career. And so the idea was to go from that point of view. And that's one of the reasons we made it international commercial arbitration. Um, I thought about making it international dispute resolution, um, international litigation and arbitration, um, international arbitration, commercial and investment. But we decided, particularly when launching, it was better to make it something that was really focused in a particular academic practice area right? and to go, and to go deeper into that. And after having done it for a couple of years, I re-examined that decision about should we expand it and decided to keep it as it was, is. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's proven successful, I guess we can say, confidently mm -hmm. at this point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, All over the world. Yeah, how many hundreds? Do you know how many alumni you have out there? Uh, we should have about, I would say about 400, because we take in about 30 students per year. And how did, let's talk about the selection process of, I mean, you get applications from all over the world. L last year, the raw numbers, it was um, about, I think, I think it was about 900 or something. Wow. From 106 countries. Down to 30. Yeah, but that, I said the raw numbers. Okay. <laughs> Soft numbers. <laughs> I just wanted no, so to make myself more special. Really? Yeah, I know you. <laughs> I your, made it. For your career, you used to always joke that it was more difficult to get into the Eichel program than Yale. Because <laughs> he's like a graduate that. at Yale. <laughs> but that's what it, I mean, what you were saying about the LLM programs in the U.S. is, I feel, especially living in Europe for the past six years, is that it's a direct route to the New York bar exam. Because you need the, an LLM from an American university to sit for the bar exam. So people don't, and you need to take courses that are broad in scope to sit for the bar. So people go to take an LLM and whatever, and they study evidence and ethics and civil procedure, and then maybe an arbitration course, and they get an LLM in international arbitration, and they are on their way. So does that prepare you for what you should have been prepared for when you enter an LLM or exit an LLM program? Uh, I think it's completely different. Do you know if other European LLM programs and international arbitration are styled in the same way as your LLM program is? Well, I think that, um, well, now there's many more than there used to be. Right. And I think there's been a movement over the past several years that that many um, academics and are recognizing, or, or when I say academics, I'm including the people in the bureaucracy of a law school, or recognizing that there is a real market for having specialized programs, including arbitration, and markets and other specialized practice areas. And um, so we're starting to see that more and more universities are starting to offer more specialized LLMs that are not as broad, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And the degree to which they actually specialize varies quite a bit. Um, if I should be a bit um, provocative. Please. It's the arbitration station. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's our middle name. <laughs> yeah, and this is, not, uh, this is not anything that's not been discussed a lot. But many of the programs, um, particularly um, outside of Europe, because remember in Europe education is considered in most countries a, a right. And the, the tuition is in some um, instances non-existent for European citizens or very low. That's not the case in other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, tuition can be very expensive. Um, it's not unusual in the U.S. for an LLM that you pay fifty, sixty thousand dollars tuition. We're not talking loss of income during the year you're not working. Books, We're not talking housing, tuition. Yeah. I mean, sorry, <clears throat> housing or food. We're just talking tuition. So it's quite expensive, and for 
a law school, it can be a cash cow. Because if you bring in 60, 70, 80 students, and then you hire an adjunct to give them a few weeks of introduction to American law, it doesn't cost very much to hire an adjunct to teach that. And then they just take, you spread them around into the elective courses, a few here, a few there. And then at the end, they do a thesis. And they often do not get the same access to career counseling and yeah, all of that yeah. that the regular students do. And what the bargain is, is you get a degree from this um, respected American university. You're going to be able to sit for a bar, maybe, depending on where you come from. Right. You're going to be able to show that you were able to study in English in the U.S. system and have this LLM. So that's the bargain for exchange. And it's you your Prada handbag argument. Prada. <laughs> yeah. You pay for the brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you pay for that opportunity. And you know, is that worth, let's say, the tuition is $60,000 for the year? Is it worth it to you, the 60000 Will you leave with sufficient um, uh, employment boost, pimping your CV? That's or not? A, yeah. it, dep it depends on who you are and what you're looking for and where you're going. Yeah. And that's not to say that students who go in these programs don't get robust, valuable experiences, but they do come at a cost. And one, I mean, I mean, and think for the university. S say that you have 60, 60 students paying $60,000. You don't have really any greater, the, the brick and mortar costs don't change. Oh, right. You have limited extra teacher costs. Yeah, the overhead's the same basically, it's just money coming in, Yeah, more or less. So that's why they're called cash cows. Um, that doesn't mean I wouldn't recommend students to do that. It may fit very well into their career plans and they may have the budget for it. Well, see, that's where I think the problem is, is because people hiring are looking for this. And so they're willing to spend the money and they're willing to take that year off and not make an income for that year because they think that at the end of their education, they're going to have it on their CV and then they're, that's when it's going to get them that top job. And the problem is, is that people hiring are looking at that and they're... Are they though? I mean, that's, that's I, a, I hear that. It's a common refrain, but do we know that for a fact more than anecdotally? Yeah, yeah, I guess our guest is maybe the best person and would be in the best position <laughs> to say so. Is it in fact something that employers are interested in? I mean, it's always better to have one than to not have one. Yeah, I, th of course, but. I, I don't know. I just know anecdotally. And I've talked to a few people. I think that it probably was a more standout to have an LLM, particularly if it was a specialized one in arbitration, um, 10 years ago. But now there's... Um, it, it, 10 years ago, you didn't see that many um, people getting LLMs outside of their country. And so I think now there's such a proliferation and there's so, the applicants to jobs in arbitration. Students have such incredible CVs these days where they've done a number of certifications and different programs and courses and speak languages and have done things. Right. So having an LLM doesn't really make you stick out very much anymore. Not in the arbitration community. Um, but then you could take turn it around this will make Brian feel better. And that's like, that's not, <laughs> not having an LLM maybe makes exactly. you stick out because it's like, wow, I, almost everybody who applies for a job here has yes, an LLM. I can say that there's, in the disputes group here, there's no one, I mean, people get LLMs not necessarily specialized in arbitration, but they work in the disputes group. 
So I would say there's very few that have an LLM in international arbitration that work in international arbitration yeah. at this firm. So I don't. I think you're right that maybe it's not that big of a deal. But if you're thinking, okay, well, between person A and person B, who are we going to give the job to? Does it come down to the LLM? I don't know. Yeah, but it, it also depends probably on what you did instead if you didn't do the LLM. I mean, in many instances, it's probably a good idea to work for a good firm in your home jurisdiction or go and work abroad as opposed to study abroad for a year. And you, if you have a good alternative explanation as to why you didn't do the LLM, you, you could just have done... Like, well, like you couldn't afford $60,000. Yes, for example. <laughs> that's why and living you go to in Sweden. New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what I think. I think what people want, especially firms now trying to save money, they want to hire someone who, as a first-year associate, is not a first-year associate, that they get a little more for their money on that first year, that they're coming in mm -hmm. with practical experience, be it through an education, practical experience, or working somewhere mm -hmm. else. So I think that's kind of what they get out of it, which yeah. brings me how much to the point of how much practical experience should be involved in an LLM education, mm -hmm. um, if that's what practitioners are looking for when they're hiring students. And I can say from experience that, generally speaking, universities are not looking for practitioners to be that involved in the teaching. So no. there's an opposing interest from within the university as well to try to keep it to permanent faculty as much as humanly possible. Well, I think you're speaking more about in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From then personal the experience, US. you're probably I think in right. In the U.S., you probably get more. And in Paris, you have quite a number of uh, practitioners who contribute. They're not directing the course; they're not lecturing every week, but they're they're richly enhancing the learning experience by bringing their their um, knowledge and experience in. What what I've done in the Stockholm program, and each program is different. But in the Stockholm program, I see it as my responsibility to ensure that the students have a baseline, what I call the ABCs, the, the comprehensive basic course that they have, a pretty small core teaching team, which is taking them from the beginning to the end of the study of, of arbitration. And then we add into it a lot of guest lecturers who are providing practical insights and giving practice experience and sharing their knowledge and experience and expertise. And I think that combination, so one of the problems, if you just have a lot of practitioners and adjuncts who each just come in and just each do a bit, right. that it can be pretty choppy and it can be difficult for the student to really have a coherent learning experience and a clear understanding of what they need to deliver in order to do well. Right. Because they'll have different approaches in these uh, uh, the step out, what do you call it? The, these teachers who are passing the baton uh -huh. may not have a clear understanding what came before and what comes after. So what we try to provide is that you have that coherent base, and then we add a lot mm. of, but of that, the extras. Uh, that latter element really presupposes that you're in some sort of arbitration community, which you mentioned initially that the, there was a, a good idea to have this thing in Stockholm specifically because there was already a community screaming for that type of, of thing. And it strikes me that many other of the the well-known, which we should mention as a public service, there are other arbitration yeah. LMs, yeah. of course, and they're in Good London point. and Geneva and, and, and Paris and in arbitration centers, basically. You, it seems like that's not a coincidence because you want to draw from being mm. part of a community. And there are some that are growing. We have like the Pepperdine program now has gone over from being really? a more generalized to it being more focused on arbitration. Yeah. And now we have Humboldt that recently launched one. In Germany. Um, yeah. yeah. And Miami and, is pretty. Yeah, and Miami. Right? And so you can't really say that these are robust arbitration communities. Growing maybe, but right. 
and they do have arbitration practitioners. But we have, besides the Swedish arbitration community, because we have a lot of international arbitrations, we have a lot of um, arbitration practitioners that come in for cases or come in for conferences and seminars. And then as soon as I hear that, I'm <laughs> busy. <laughs> you just pick them up. <laughs> trying to get them to share. And my experience is that my experience is that the arbitration community internationally is most people are really open and considered to be both uh, the classic, it is my duty and my privilege to contribute to fostering the new generation. And so most of them find it as a... And to also put it on their resume that they are yeah. lecturing. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I think when I get asked, like, the three classic arbitration ones that have been around for a while is, of course, Queen Mary, now been around for 34 years. Julian Liu was very innovative in starting it. And then you have the MIDS program, which started just after Stockholm. And when I get asked by prospective students, which one should I go to? The one that suits you best. They are three very different. They have different content. They have different formats. They have different styles. And I, all three are good. So you should go to the one that you think best suits you for your particular Because yeah, at the experience. end of the day, it's up to you anyway, as a student, potential mm -hmm. candidate, what have you, to... to do what you can with the tools offered. It's not the tools themselves really that make the difference, I think. But well, I, I would like to go to my, my big theme that I like to always push on this topic. And that is that um, I think particularly as, uh, as educators and realizing that education has an entrepreneurial aspect, we're selling something um, to students, and even those of us in Europe, where we may not be collecting a lot of tuitions and we're offering it, we're still competing for students to come and to yeah. take our product. And I think that we need to be mindful of um, that we have a responsibility that we don't oversell or raise expectations beyond what we're able to deliver. And we have a responsibility to try to, in, realistically, not everyone who goes through all of these programs are going to end up in the kind of jobs that the two of you enjoy. Right. Realistically, Amen. they're yeah. not. That's very, not. very good point. And I think realistically, we need to to to, to inform students of that. Yeah. That some will and some won't, and we need to ensure that what we're offering and selling is going to have transferable knowledge and skills. That the fact that they come uh, have this LLM experience is going to have components that will enrich their personal and professional life, even if they don't get a job at a leading arbitration firm or become a leading academic, that they still can have, the a, yeah, that they will have something coming out of this experience that will make it very worthwhile for them. So I don't think we can just continue to sell the product and disregard the buyer and whether or not that product is, is relevant. I think it's our responsibility That's to ensure that. Point. To what extent is it the university's job or task, though, to assist with employment opportunities? Well, in Sweden, that's not happening. <laughs> um, one, it's just not the traditional role of the university and the resources. And in Sweden, we have a, a government uh, employment service. And so that's, that's not going to happen. But in other LLM programs where they have very extensive placement programs for the regular students, they often don't offer them to, un to the LLM students. Even though they pay mm -hmm. big bucks. Mm. Right. <clears throat> I, I think that, and you do this in your program as well, is that you expose the students to different firms and different types of people and kind of like show them 
Okay. And you're not definitely not saying, okay, network during the coffee break, but that you're saying, okay, these are the types of people and these are the types of jobs that you can have to kind of show people a little bit the road. So you're kind of taking it on yourself, not necessarily the university. Yeah, and, and trying to give some general career advice and, and generally letting aware of different kinds of opportunities. But I think that the, imp the important things about LLMs, like, for example, if you go to the New York market and getting to get the New York bar, right. if you pass it, um, very few of the LLM students who pass the New York bar are going to find they get that opens the door to a, a job in New York. There's so much competition. And um, these days, when a law firm or a client is looking for local advice, they're not looking for the, the Swede or the whatever in, in New York. They will instead, their firm or that, that client will engage a local lawyer right. in Stockholm. And that's the way it works. So having somebody who becomes the local foreign lawyer is not a very um, uh, viable career alternative today. Because the actual local lawyers are fluent in English and have connections with the bigger firms anyway. Yeah, and they want somebody, if you're going to be the local lawyer from country X, then whoever's going to engage you, law firm or client, they want you to have local knowledge. Mm. They want you to understand the law, the market, yeah. the players, the courts, or whatever, that environment. And if you're not practicing there, you're not going to have that. Right. So what the LLM can do, again, wherever, but we'll take New York as the example, for the student who goes there, has that experience, they probably are more attractive when they go back home because then their resume sticks out. Right. You know, take, for example, a Chinese student. It's a very competitive market. I've been studying abroad for a year. I can work with foreign materials. I can work in English. Taking the New York bar. You know, and that may be the kind of thing that makes their resume have an extra um, thing on it, which will get them and make them more attractive to employers back home. Yeah, sure. But it's not going to open a lot of doors in New York. No, because they're fighting with 12,000 Native Americans, yeah, and a lot of LLM job. students. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's why I think it's having realistic uh, um, expectations. But having an LLM, it's also should be viewed not just as a career step, but as a great personal yeah. experience. Getting to spend the year where you're getting to learn with students from around the world and working with new materials and being in a new city and a new environment and new culture and getting those new connections. I mean, that's a exciting, stimulating experience. That and extremely educational. I remember we had, the, there's a mock arbitration as part of the program where, you know, in parallel to your studies, you're doing a, a real life, real life arbitration. And uh, I think I objected during one of the hearings that we had. And it's like, no, 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 that doesn't happen here. <laughs> and it was just, you real. first of all, I mean, writing styles, pleading styles, courtroom etiquette, all that stuff, you bring so much from your home country. And yeah. it was a really quick learning experience for me to mm -hmm. be like, okay, start from scratch. Like, we need to learn something else here. And that was, I mean, that is extremely useful, especially if you want to have a career internationally. Yeah. Yeah, and I th that's what I, as you know, you've been through the program, tell students when they come, is that what we can really offer in Stockholm is that for the coming year, you're going to be spending a lot of time with the other 30 people 
we go around, they introduce, and they always come from more than 20 different jurisdictions with very diverse backgrounds yeah. in terms of their prior work experience and study experience. And in the mocks and in different activities, we purposely mix them up so that they're having to contend with people who come from very different legal cultures, backgrounds, and then having to try to work together to make a request for arbitration, to make a statement of defense, to prepare for the hearing. And we know the tensions. Yeah, those first few times are really interesting, just to be a fly on the wall and follow the discussions mm. when you realize how, yeah, how different their preconceived notions are of how things should be approached. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and I think it's useful because I'm sure, Brian, that for you practicing, that you've had clients from different jurisdictions with exactly. different expectations. You've had co-counsel that you've had to work from different jurisdictions, you've had arbitrators from different, and hopefully that's made you less American and a little bit more international. I have. My voice year. is still loud, but I've definitely <laughs> <laughs> While we have you here as well, Patricia, just let me ask you a, a, a related question. In, in the inaugural episode of this podcast, Brian let me rant on about the, getting a PhD and how I viewed my life as a PhD or doctoral candidate. It's dark and lonely business. <laughs> I was actually trying to, to sell it much more <laughs> aggressively. Like, it's, it's heaven. I don't have to shave. I don't have to shower. Yeah, insert Joel's beard here. <laughs> but you have a PhD, and you're also involved in the academic environment. It would be interesting to hear your perspective on the sort of the next step in addition to the LLM. Would it be advisable to do a PhD in international arbitration? What are your experiences? Well, let me step back and say my experience is probably a bit affected by the fact that I was a practicing lawyer for 10 years dealing in commercial litigation and just starting to do arbitration before I came to Sweden and did my LLM and then developed this course. So I have a tendency to recommend PhDs, uh, prospective PhD students who contact me and want to do PhD studies. And I encourage them to go and practice for a couple of years so that they get that practice experience, which I think will enrich their studies. And also, um, doing a PhD, it may sound like heaven, that you'll have four or five years to just work on a book. How difficult can it be to write a book? I mean, my goodness, Hillary already came out with her book on the election. <laughs> but it is, it is a difficult project, and it's a big project. And if you're not really committed with, to it and you're not really passionate about it, I know that passion is overused these days, but if you're really not, then it's going to be a long and lonely business because you really do have to spend a lot of time doing this as a solo job. So I think that if you go out and practice a couple of years and if you still are burning to do a PhD, then you can come back and you can do it. If after a couple of years you've decided you don't want to do it, be grateful that you found that out after two years of practice and you still have a job. <laughs> About four years down the exactly. road. And send Patricia Shaughnessy a thank you note. <laughs> so you need a cooling off period. Yeah. I didn't, and I wish I did, actually. Not because I'm, I'm getting uh, way in over my head now, but I, I realized and I think that I'm mature enough to say that I wish I practiced for a couple of years just to get a different perspective before I started to pretend that I know what I'm talking about, even though I haven't actually worked that much with what I'm researching. But, but if you did, then Joel, you probably wouldn't be doing the PhD and the academic community would be 
at a loss for that. Probably. There will because, be no dynamic in this podcast, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, because I, I'm sure that you'll see that Brian's office is much nicer than yours. And I'm sure, Everything in Brian's life is yeah, so much nicer than mine. Yeah, and I'm, we're <laughs> not going to cufflinks yeah, behind you. Yeah, yeah, and we're not going to go into paychecks, and we're not going to go. Oh, please don't. Yeah, we're not going to go into all the other things. So the idea of going back to a Swedish university to your little cubicle and studying there for four years, you know, um, after two years of practice, you'd have to be really passionate. <laughs> That's true. That's good. It's a good test. It is a good test. <laughs> So are you not, you're, we call this conference season this season. Are you attending any conferences this season or is, are you fully booked this fall? Um, I've been trying to travel a little bit less and to do um, uh, fewer things, but um, I'm trying to focus on a book project. And so that um, requires that you actually sit home and write. Do you recognize that, Joel? Yeah, I've, I've heard people say yeah. that. And going off to conferences can be um, very fun and inspiring, but they also take a lot more time out of your schedule. Right. But having said that, next Saturday I'm flying off to Brazil. Really? So, yes. <laughs> I'm having lined out easy. my 19 caveats. I'm going on a trip to Antarctica. Yeah, so I'll go to the, the uh, CAM CCBC uh, pan Pan American Conference. I'll Very be speaking exciting. there, and then while I'm there, I'm going to have the um, pleasure of speaking at a couple of universities in Sao Paulo. Wow. And some of the alumni set up and meeting with a couple of these teams, and then I'll finish off by um, speaking at a seminar that AmCham, you know, is um, arranging for. It's a group for under forty in Brazil, and they're arranging a seminar. I'll be speaking about diversity issues and things. So I'll have Very a exciting. so interesting. And it's a perfect time to leave Stockholm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking as you yeah. were saying it. Like I should also go to Brazil in November. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah, good idea. So are you gonna give us some gossip or should we save it for another episode? The gossip session. Yeah, the gossip. Well, I mean the, 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 if we're gonna have a gossip session, we're gonna have to have more than uh, still water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you for coming down. Thank you so much, and good luck with all your speaking engagements and with the book project. Yeah, especially. thank you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to collaborate with you guys. I think you guys have uh, taken on a really cool, innovative, and needed uh, project that will... More. From your mouth to the <laughs> listeners' ears. <laughs> See you later.